Hi everyone! Welcome to the 14th episode of the Svarim Chatter series on Shop Sitesvi. On this episode of the series, I spoke with Dr. David Sklar, and we discussed the Ramchal controversy through Moshe Chaim Litzato, which occurred in the early to mid-18th century. Some of what we discussed in this episode was discussed in a previous episode with Dr. Sklar about the Ramchal's life. But in this episode, we went more in-depth on the controversy, how it related to Sabatianism, the Ramchals, and his group, Mavakshe Hashem, their outlook on Messianism, and more. Um, we'd li- I'd like to thank the corporate sponsor of the series once again, uh, Glock Plumbing, for all your service needs, big or small in New Jersey, with a full-service division from boiler changeouts, main sewer line snakeouts, cameraing main lines, to a simple faucet leak, Glock Plumbing Service Division has you covered. Give them a call, 732-523-1836, extension 1. That's 732-523-1836, extension 1. And as always, if anyone has any questions, comments, or feedback, or would like to sponsor a show, please email me, svarimchatter at gmail.com. Also, this episode is going, it will be the first episode that will go live with the new Svarim Chatter website, where all the podcasts are, uh, the searchable, the Svarim, the Shopsay Svi series, is all together in a drop-down menu. Um, all the tweets from Svarum Chatter are there as well on the website, so check it out. Any feedback, uh, please email me, and the website is svarumchatter.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svarum Chatter podcast and another episode of the series on Shopsite Svi. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Dr. David Sklar once again, and we will be discussing the Ramchal controversy uh, that took place with Ramesh Chaim Lutsato. So thank you, Dr. Sklar, for joining me once again. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Okay, so I, I first of all, I mentioned to listeners, to, you know, about the Ramchal and his whole life, including the controversy we did discuss on a previous episode, which I can, it's on, it's in the episodes a while back, but I will put a link to that in the show's notes again, so people can just easily find it. But for this episode, we're going to go a little bit more in-depth on the controversy and just to discuss the controversy and how it relates to Sabatianism and how that all occurred. So let's, I guess, start off again with the controversy. Where did it start and how did this, uh, you know, take, what year was it and how did it take place? Okay, so uh, Ramchal, or Moshe Chaim Lutzato, he lived between 1707, he died in probably 1746, maybe 47. Um, he was clearly exceptional when he was as a young man and uh, was raised by, was born to a wealthy family and he was given all that he really wanted. He pursued his intellectual and ultimately became mystical pursuits. Um, There were reports that by the time he was 14, he was able to, uh, he was completely a capitalist by by then and he memorized, he he knew all of uh, the Zohar and the works of the Ari. he had joined a Kabbalistic group that was in Padua, uh, just a small one. It was called Mevak Um, While he was still an adolescent, he was a teenager. And um, they studied uh, sort of in an annex or like a, a room off the main, uh, the main uh, shul of the, the Ashkenazic synagogue, like off, off the, with the main sanctuary of the Ashkenazic synagogue in Padua. Um, and at some point in 1727, that was around 1724, 1725, then he started, he, by the time he was 18 in 1725, he was ordained. Uh, he was given smicha. In 1725 or 26, I might be misremembering exactly, 
the group sort of disbanded as Mepakshay Hashem and they rejoined or they reformed in the house of his father where he was living. And he was essentially at the center. And in 1727, it becomes very sort of focused and messianic. The controversy itself, there's a lot that goes on and we can come back to this exactly, but the controversy really begins in August 1729. There was uh, an individual named Yukutio Gordon of Vilna. He had come from Vilna to Padua to study medicine at the University of Padua. The University of Padua was actually the first university that admitted Jews uh, back in the 13th century. And Jews have been coming, either local Jews already in Padua or elsewhere in the Italian peninsula have been coming and they're studying medicine. Um, Yukutio Gordon came to Padua in order to study medicine a physician. He meets Ramchal, apparently, uh, probably meets other people first, uh, other mystics, and they connect and they uh, really become uh, sort of uh, tied together in, in their mystical and possibly even right from the beginning messianic pursuits. And um, Yikutio Gordon ultimately becomes his sort of Ramchal's uh, student. And then even like even more so, like a disciple. So in August 1729, he sends two letters out. Sends a letter, one back to Vilna, to a rabbi there. And another one, they're almost identical, these letters. And another one he sends to a man named Mordechai Jaffe, who we know of otherwise, uh, to a certain extent, he sort of was mixed up in the M. Denibish's controversy. So when Jaffe gets this letter, I should say that the letters themselves are proclaiming this glorious situation in Padua where there's this young man who seems to be just gifted from God. He has a, a magid. This magid is, includes basically is this heavenly voice, but he has more than just a magid because he can also apparently, according to as Gordon is writing this, also can meet these uh, the souls of the righteous. That includes Abraham Avinu, and he can meet with, uh, um, I think I, I think he refers to Adam Arishon. It's, I can't, it's, again, I'm sorry if I don't recall. But um, in addition, he says that Ramchal is the reincarnation of Akiva ben Yosef, Rabbi Akiva. And in describing this, he says to the rabbis who he's sending these letters to, one to Vienna, one to Vilna, um, you know, the, this man is astonishing. This young man is astonishing, and he can tell you secrets about your own life, specifically what your own tikkun would be, so to speak. What it seemed is that Gordon was attempting to receive, he was sort of proclaiming this great moment, and he also was hoping to receive some sort of patronage, like, in other words, some sort of support from outside of Padua. Uh, now, locally, they clearly already had some basic support, even more than just basic, because ultimately the group that Ramchal was a part of very much consisted of those of this young, this new young generation of rabbis there. There was a chief rabbi and there had been chief rabbis there. But at this time, uh, Lutzato himself, Ramchal himself had already been ordained and there were others as well who would receive smicha. So when Gordon is sending this letter out, it's like this proclamation. Um, he doesn't mention Mashiach per se, and it's not, it's unclear as to what the real goal is, but it does seem to me that he's now saying, okay, there's something very special and, and I'm, you know, I want you to know about it. Um, we don't really know what happens with the letter that goes to Vilna, but Jaffe basically, Mordechai Jaffe gets this thing and he sends it off to Moshe Chajiz, who is at that time 
I know that you had a Lisha Bakarabach on the podcast, so you can, the listeners can hear all about Khajiz and you can read her book, which is called Pursuit of Heresy. Um, Khajiz was known basically as this heresy hunter. He got this letter from Jaffe, which included a copy of the, he received a letter directly from Jaffe stating, this is the letter that I got. He got a copy of this thing from Gordon. And he immediately, you know, it raised red flags. This is, this is no good. We've got a young man who evidently is not married, who's 20 at the time. Oh, this is 20, this is 1729. So actually he's 22, but evidently based on, you know, sort of reconstructing other things, it seems that the Magid arrives in 1727, but in any event, Khajiz finds this to be extremely disturbing and really directly must be a direct connection to the messianism and ultimately the Sabatianism that has persisted. Um, again, your, your listeners are going to have lots of people to listen to, but uh, you know the Shabtai Tzvi. Here you had this great movement in, in 1665 and 1666. And there have been previously, there had been great messianic moments, so to speak. But in this particular case, you had uh, this messianism actually persisted and then sort of was reconfigured over time, even after Shabbatai, you know, converted to Islam and then he died in 1676. So anyway, um, it persisted the Sabbatianism in whatever that form ultimately means. And that's what we can talk about, whatever this this term Sabbatianism means. It persisted for decades um, in like a subterranean type of way in the underground. And so therefore, when Khajiz hears that there's this young man who claims that he has these heavenly voices and that he, you know, he can tell people their tikkunim, then this sounds like it's no good and it's got to be false and it's got to be something very, just to be concerned about. Could be a whole new messianic movement and we don't want to rock the boat and we don't want to mess with anything. So he writes letters to rabbis in Venice. And he essentially demands that they investigate what's going on in Padua. The reason he writes to Venice is, first of all, because the Venetian Jewish communities, and it's not a single community per se, there are about 5,000 Jews that are living in Venice. They sort of have their multiple synagogues and multiple ethnicities. And for it gets complicated here in terms of how we understand community, um, because you sort of have different ethnicities that have separate charters with the state, with the Venetian state, and they don't all function in a single way. And they don't all function as united front. And so there's not a single rabbinate per se in Venice, but in any event, Khaji sends this letter to, perhaps multiple letters to Venice saying, you have to investigate Padua. So Venice is this large, involves a much larger Jewish community uh, than in Padua. And the other reason that Venice is seen as, you know, that Khajiz sees Venice as the one that can investigate um, is because technically Padua is under the, the control of the Venetian state. And he assumes that that means that the Jews in Padua are under the control of the Venetian Jews. Now, the problem with this is that, practically speaking, when it comes to Jewish communities, no community, at least in this particular instance, I should say, the, the Padua Jewish community existed as its own polity, its own entity. Venetian Jewry functioned separately, and that meant that basically the Venetian, any Venetian rabbis had no authority in, in Padua. Um, however, there are deep connections between Venetian Jews and Padua Jews. In fact, in, in fact uh, Ramchal's father, Yaakov Chaim Lutzato, 
Um, he and his brother had come from Venice. They originally were Venetian and they had come from Venice to Padua in the 17 teens or something like that. Um, so there was this sort of like rabbinic council or rabbinic commission that was sent to Padua to investigate the situation. And a controversy developed basically over the next several months between the fall of 1729 and then well into the summer of uh, 1730 really investigating what is going on in this, in Padua with this mystical group, some of whom these individuals are rabbis and they're all young. And what are these reports about Rimchel? Is this true that there's a Magid? What does it mean? And what are they hoping to accomplish? Um, should I keep going or do you want to ask like a, like a follow-up question? I can take this in different directions. You keep going, but let me just jump in with a, with a couple small comments for the listeners. Um, maybe I made these in the last episode we did as well. But um, first of all, so Venice was this kind of Venetian state at the time. And so Padua was part of it, Venice, this uh, city-state. Um, uh, something else was also, you mentioned they, the Lutzatos came from Venice. Ripsimcha Lutzato was one of the, in the 17th century, the big Rabbanim in Venice was Lutzato. And also, another thing on the Ramchal, you said he wasn't married, he also was clean-shaven. As well, at the time, I think that was another issue, right? Was he... So that comes up later. I don't think that, that when when Chajiz first heard of all of this, he didn't know specifics about Ramchal. And in fact, the whole thing about the controversy is that um, the closer people got to Ramchal, the sort of less concerned they were. It's not always the, the case exactly, but um, the biggest outcry took place among specifically Ashkenazic uh, rabbis who were in Central and Eastern Europe, who just heard sort of these unbelievable stories that seemed, and then sort of tied it to, you know, major concerns about Sabatianism. Um, and they had no way of knowing Ramchal, having any idea who this person was. And uh, and so, you know, the controversy sort of became its own, you know, massive problem yeah so you can you can take which way you want i mean one way i also would say is just to go back you said Moshe Haji started sending off letters so, i mean who are the other people that are accusing ramchal and kind of where does okay so like it, there are different there? directions here okay so uh, that's it the initial point is what takes place where gordon sends this letter in in the, right before rosh hashanah which is probably not coincidental in 1729 and then Hajiz gets word of it and he raises this concern and he wants a sort of like a commission sent to, from Venice. He wants an investigation. The Venetian rabbis, many of the Venetian rabbis basically get, they start, they, they, they're a handful who go and they start to investigate. Okay, so who are you? They know the Lutato family. They know his father. They probably know one of his uncles. They know other uncles in the family uh, because this is a prominent family. They also know the Ramchal's former teacher, Isaiah Bassan, who by then was the rabbi of Reggio Emilia. So this is where it gets a little bit, it starts to get more complicated and also much more interesting relating to exactly what do we mean by Sabatianism. This, so we're talking 17, you know, fall 1729 into 1730. Letters are sent around within, within Italy, within the Italian peninsula from one community to the next, mainly among the rabbis. Um, 
trying to figure out who is this guy and how serious he is he. Like, what are these claims about a Magid? Now, first of all, there's a long history of Magidim, which I think you had Matt Goldish on, I probably talked about it. In, in short, you can have, you know, in the early modern period, no one was denying the possibility that somebody could reach some heights where they're going to have some contact with uh, some heavenly voice. I mean, we have this from Yosef Karam most famously, but it goes back earlier than that, and we see it otherwise. It becomes a major problem in, in with Sabatianism, or with, I should really, bef- not so much Sabatianism itself, but with the Sheptites fee movement in 1665 and 66, and Goldish actually published a book about this, where sort of people who are not in theory, intellectually, or even spiritually capable of attaining such heights are the ones who are actually sort of receiving these pro- quote-unquote prophecies. So the concern here is, if you're hearing about this young man who, uh, you know, as it comes out in the investigation, is not married, doesn't have a beard, because it wasn't popular at the time, so that, you know, that was that. Um, that somehow he's the one who has a magi, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, <clears throat> doesn't mean that it's not possible, because, as I said, Ramchal's teacher during, like, the heart of his adolescence, you know, if you're thinking, like, the importance of the time of when you, be, you know, become reach the age of bar mitzvah and you, yeah, you have all his teacher the chief rabbi of Bethlehem at the time was isaiah basan basan who by this time was in reggio Emilia, he was the son-in-law of binyamin cohen vitale so binyamin cohen had been a student of moshe zakut zakut was really the major italian kabbalist of the second half of the 17th century so it was originally had come from a converso family, had been born, I can't recall actually where he was born, but he lived his early years in Amsterdam, left Amsterdam, went to Poland, I think, for a short time, and then ended up in Venice for many years, and eventually uh, became chief rabbi in Mantua, where he really built his own sort of Kabbalistic movement at some point I came up like this terminology that keeps going around in my own head which I've used before is that he almost like cultivates something like Italian Hasidism itself like an Italian form of, of, of Hasidut I don't mean Eastern European Hasidus but like this importance of Hasidut and this importance of Kabbalah but bringing it out uh, you know almost socially so uh, in any event Vitale Vinyman Cohen is was a student of, of Zakut. And at this time of Ramchal, and for the decades before that, he'd been known as a Sabatian. He had been, even with, with Shabtai's conversion to Islam and his death, there had been some notion in his mind, and it's difficult to know exactly what it was that he conceived of what it meant that he was continue to believe that Shabbat had been the Messiah in one sense or another, but like somehow this was the case. But but there was something else about like, you know, relating Benjamin Cohen to Zakut's Hasid, the, the sort of the Hasidut that was so important at the time, which was that he was profoundly from, so to speak. Like the pietism that Benjamin Cohen, who by now in the 1720s was an old man, that he had been known uh, you know, as this deep pietist, this real Hasid, um, he was respected intensely to such a degree that people, the you know, the uh, 
major rabbinim in Italy would refer to uh, Vitale when they would, you know, not directly to him, but otherwise when they would write him, they would refer to, or write about him, they would refer to him as the Kohen Gadol. They would just like not say his name, they would say, that, you know, not Kohen Gadol. So, Kohen Gadol. So, um, so anyway, these letters now and the investigations about who Ramchal was went basically to Bassan and to Vitale. And the interesting thing here about this sort of validity of the possibility that this Magid could be valid uh, related to a lot of it came down to how would Bassan react and how did Vitale react. Now, in the case of Vitale, he himself had been pursuing a Magid for decades. And he had, his close friend was Avram Ravigo, who I think also Goldish to refer to. Ravigo, in his own home, um, had had several people coming through for decades, including at, at least two people who came through who claimed that they had a Magid and Ravigo made a big deal out of this and they all didn't. And here, so you had a sort of history where Vitaly himself had been working towards this with his own piety and his own pietism, his way of life of pursuing Hasidut uh, in order, you know, hopefully reaching some level that he could actually have some connection, not just like a, whatever, quote unquote, a general connection to the divine would be, but like an actual integration of communication with, you know, with uh, some Magid. We have letters that exist that that are between Luzzato and Vitale that show that they're two generations apart, but that the young man, this young Ramchal, was deeply um, respectful of Vitale and vice versa. Vitale looked to to to, to Luzzato as you know almost with great hope. So that when we have a letter where it shows that by the time it comes out that Luzzato is supposed to, he's supposed to have a Magid, Vitale celebrates this. He doesn't like seem downtrodden that, oh, I never you know, reached it. He almost seems like, okay, this is, uh, you know, from God. Bassan, on the, on the other hand, had known this young man since he was a, a boy, right? A child. And he looked he was much more, he was not deferential in any way. And he really thought that whatever is going on with, you know, the young Ramchal and some mystical pursuit, um, that he was potentially just going down the wrong path. And he certainly shouldn't be opening his mouth about any of this. And in one letter, he's maybe more than one, actually, he refers to the possibility. Have you thought, this is Bassan, right? So this other, have you thought that perhaps the Magid is actually from the Sitra Akhra, meaning is it coming from this is a sort of source of evil? Um, rather, you know, it can appear like it's good, but maybe it really isn't. And for you to be proclaiming any of this publicly, this is dangerous news. Um, but from the point of view of, of the young Lusato, the young Ramchal, he probably... <laughs> probably had a contentious relationship with his teacher anyway. And this can happen for anybody who is an educator can know that you can have sometimes your closest students can be the ones who are who push you the hardest and you push them and it can become quite personal. For Ramchal to hear that the, you know, Binu and Cohen, that the elder statesman, that the Cohen Gadol is the one who is supporting him, 
could have been really the greatest validation he could have possibly hoped for. So there's like an internal element that's taking place here within Ramchal and within this sort of this group. There's a, a group of pietists because we're not, we haven't even really mentioned like the other individuals who are involved in Padua itself. And then there's the larger sort of political and social uh, uh, ramifications or the concerns that are taking place, you know, with these with, with the correspondence between Hajis and then obviously the, the rabbis in Venice. Now, the this investigation, there's an actual investigation sort of like by going to Padua and finding out, okay, what, what is this that, that you that, that what is going what is going on here exactly? There's some I should make the point here that just like I said, that with Venice itself, it's not a, it wasn't a single community. There wasn't a single rabbinate per se. Um, you have rabbis who are coming down on different sides, not necessarily that there are Venetian rabbis who are supporting Ramchal himself, but there's like some who are adamantly opposed to what they hear. And there are others who report that, you know, they discovered a black candle in the, the in the house or in the apartment. They found, they discovered a mirror with a, uh, with a black handle. And that this, like, these are all things that are supposed to be you know, some, some, something demonic. Um, and then there are other rabbis in Venice who sort of just want to, none they may not be supportive directly of Ramchal or become, you know, his own disciples, but they would rather not, you know, pursue them in any, you know, concern that this is actually heretical. Um, in any event, there are other people who get involved. Uh, Yitzchak Lampronti comes and visits at some point to see, he wrote the great encyclopedia Pachat Yitzchak. Uh, he was a rabbi in Ferrara. You have Yosef Ergas, who's in Livorno, who himself had been involved in the suppression of Nehemiah Chayon, I guess a decade, a bit more than a decade previously. Um, and he, so Ergas comes and he sees the situation. We have letters from him where he basically just doesn't believe Ramchal. He's not all that concerned, but he sort of says, like, I've seen some of the stuff that he's written and it doesn't seem all that impressive. It's like, uh, you know, he's more ambivalent about the situation. Also, Lampronti is not all that concerned, but he's also not proclaiming Ramchal as anything all that important. You have this whole range of, of responses, basically. This is, again, we're dealing specifically in 1730. Um, it ultimately gets to a point where there is the there is enough of a controversy that it it becomes very uncomfortable and comfortable both for Ramchal and his group within Badua and also uncomfortable for Bassan because remember these are people you know this is a there's not a single rabbinate per se but you have the rabbis work together in many ways. Um, and Bassan sort of is being demanded, there are demands that he answer for his former student. So in 1730, eventually there's an uh, there's sort of an agreement that Ramchal is going to sign an oath uh, stating that he won't, uh, he won't write anything else that is supposed, you know, that he supposedly gets any, any, any additional revelations, quote unquote, that he gets from this Magid. Um, he won't write these, and he won't publish them, and uh, he won't write in, in Aramaic, meaning the, the language of uh, the Zohar. Um, he agrees to this, this kind of thing. He writes this oath. He signs this oath, and that's supposed to be a sort of the calming effect, and that's the end of it. Um, 
it doesn't exactly end the internal pursuit of Ramchal and of the group, but it ends what seems to be this initial controversy where there's a concern and the primary, the, you know, the concern coming from Chajiz and, and then certain rabbis in Venice um, results in basically suppress, suppressing their activity and everybody who's concerned that, okay, this is potentially another messianic movement seems to be fine as long as they keep their mouths shut and everything is quiet. And that's what happens by 1730. Um, yeah, why don't you... Okay, yeah, so we can get to the, the rest of it probably later, but for, first of all, for, for source material, if anyone's interested, I should mention this already now, because you've referenced letters, these are all printed, so everyone you can purchase it in your local farm store, right, in Igris Ramchal, which Machon Ramchal now reprinted the Ginsburg. So there are a lot of these letters from the different Rabbonim. Also, you yeah. mentioned Nebios of Irgas, the author of Shem Ramunim, um, or people know Shem Ramunim Akadim, and somehow the, the Rebbe like, displaced him. I don't know how that happened. But anyways, um, um, so so yeah, the big Makumal from Livarno. Um, okay, so so let's probably, I mean, you mentioned a couple of Rabbonim, you know, and, and against him. I don't know if you mentioned those who defended him. We, we kind of did discuss him. So, I mean, what were the accusations of Sabathianism. Like you mentioned, there was like, this is 50 years, 60 years after Shabbat V. What is going on here? What were the accusations here? Um, before we get to the, the Messianism, I guess, just or maybe that's intertwined here. And then, I mean, were, were they, were, oh, I, this also goes together. So just to put this question together is, were they using Sabathian texts as well at all there? Okay, so um I think there are probably two ways to look at this just to start, like in terms of how to present it. Um, the first thing is that none of this is, is simple in, in our definition. So let's just deal with, like, was, was Ramchal familiar with Sabatian text? Okay, so the answer is absolutely yes, it's clear. He states this explicitly in letters. These are not things that these are not letters that are written publicly. It happens to be that this the letters that Gordon sent out are among the few that of all the letters that we actually have that we can see that are, were clearly meant for some sort of like greater public knowledge. Um, most of the letters that we have in the Igros Ramchal, these are you know individual letters and from one to the other. So like Ramchal, you can hear his voice is quite different when he writes to Basan compared to how he writes to, uh, you know, let's say one of the rabbis in, in Venice or or to Livorno or otherwise. So he states, yes, okay, yes, I've I've looked at Nathan of Gaza, uh, studied the Yehudim, and he basically describes how there's uh, the possibility of, uh, it's like uh, Rabbi Meir and Elisha ben Abuya, like, as a way to separate the you know the wheat from the chaff and uh, and and identify what's what, you know the actual Torah within it. Um, the context, I think, has to be. I guess so let's start with the second question that would follow this: Do you do, do we have to define Ramchal as a Sabatian in a Sabatian in this way? Um, and the answer is not necessarily. Does Sabatianism mean that he's actually, you know, a follower and believer of, of Shabtai Tzvi? Even that has to be defined. Because, and this is where I would really um, encourage your readers to look deeply at Isaiah Tishbi, who spent many, many years studying Ramchal and going very, very deeply into the analysis, like his own, his articles on Ramchal demand their own 
many, many years long study. Um, Ramchal developed sort of his own doctrine of the Messiah that was based on, partly based on the some sort of doctrines of Messiah that it, that existed within Shabtaut, that had existed within Sabbatianism, that had come from Nathan of Gaza. Um, basically, any notion for anybody who's imagining, okay, when we pray for Mashiach, you know, we're praying to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that Mashiach will come, that it sort of begins and ends there, it gets so much more complicated. In the case of Ramchal's group, you had a situation where the, there was an individual in the group who they claimed was Mashiach ben David. His name was Moshe David Vali. Moshe David Vali was 10 years older than Ramchal. He was an established Kabbalist already. He was in Mivakshe Hashem. You remember I mentioned at the beginning that Ramchal at the age of you know 14 or whatever had started joining, you know, he had joined this group of Mivakshe Hashem. So Vali already was a deep Kabbalist. And uh, Tishbi published stuff. And also there's a, a scholar in, uh, in Israel in the Hebrew University, Yoni Garb, who's published a, a Moshe David Vali. So here you have in this group, okay, so they say that Moshe, that, uh, Moshe David Vali is Moshe and David. And then another member of the group, possibly as a Roman in, so the guy who's in Padua, it's a member of the group. He's gonna he's Mashiach and Yosef, and then there are other individuals in the group who have some other these other characteristics, these other roles to play. And you'll recall that the letter from Gordon claimed that that Ramchal had was a reincarnation of Kiba ben Yosef. And there's a whole bunch of like multiplicity of worlds taking place here, and trying to like ascribe well who's got one what role and how does this all work. Ramchal himself is supposed to be supreme in all of this, but if you've got Mashiach ben David already taken and Mashiach ben Yosef already taken, then what's Ramchal? So Ramchal is actually Moshe, as in Moshe Rabbeinu. And Tishbi actually shows, and I'm not one to argue in, with this at all, um, that at one point it seems clear that, that uh, Ramchal saw himself as the reincarnation of Moshe Rabbeinu, which is you know not a coincidence that, that Gordon says that he's the reincarnation of Kiba ben Yosef, if Kiba ben Yosef is a reincarnation of Moshe Rabbeinu, anyway, but that at some point there's a switch, and that actually Moshe Chaim Lutzato becomes like the, there's the Ibur of Moshe Rabbeinu, like he's the actual is Moshe Rabbeinu. It gets really far out and very complicated. Um, and it gets even more complicated because what Tishbi has shown is that when you get into some of Ramchal's texts written, especially in these years of 1729, 1730, Ramchal seems to claim or show that the belief is that Shabtai was Mashiach ben Yosef, that there was this notion that he really was the person at that time who was supposed to be Mashiach, or he's part of this messianic era and okay he died because Mashiach and Yosef is going to die now you could also ask the question well how can Shabtai Tzvi be Mashiach and Yosef and then they have another member of the group who two generations later is Mashiach and Yosef but it doesn't that doesn't really have to be a problem because Ramchal also writes in a completely separate situation he writes a letter to Isaiah Bassan remember his former teacher that he just realized that Isaiah Bassan is a reincarnation of Akiba ben Yosef. 
So he can be a so he, they both share some reincarnated aspect of Rabbi Akiva. So if that's the case, then you may as well have multiple people who can be share something about you know some aspect of Mashiach Ben Yosef. In any event, um, with with Tishbi's work, what what's clear here is that, and he because he argues it's so, and you got to go through it with like a fine tooth comb here. Um, that Ramchal knows Sabatian texts extremely well, and he's taking them extremely seriously. Uh, as in, it's not just like, okay, I know Kabbalah, and therefore I'm going to know the works of uh, Cordovero and Luria and everybody else, and then and then Zakut and everything that he did in the 17th century. It's, it's that what Nathan of Gaza offered is legitimate and has to be dealt with. Now, the, again, it's like defining legitimacy. Does it mean that it's like completely kosher? No, clearly not. But it doesn't mean that it should be denied. Or he, Now, it, it's also, I should mention, because of the way you sort of phrase the question, you know, in terms of like, what were they studying? Ramchal clearly is engaged in this. Other members of the group, not necessarily so. And especially after the oath was signed in 1730, the group did not disband. If anything, by 1731, it's pretty clear that they're even more, they're even, um, it's not that they're stronger per se, but they're like more ensconced. They really never had an, an issue within Padua itself because many of them, they all have positions you know, in terms of the, being the sons of uh, important figures in the community and several of the top individuals, Ramchal being one, by the Romanen being another, others um, being, you know, having smicha and being, you know, sort of the intellectual elite within the, within the community, young, young intellectual elite, but, but still there. Um, so the group started to expand but in like a pyramidal sort of a, like a hierarchical manner, there's the, there are those at the top, Lutzato, Vale, and then there are sort of into second tier. And then there's even a third tier. Anybody who really is interested in joining some greater pietistic pursuit um, in this intentional uh, per, uh, let's say this desire to bring about this great unity in the world, which sort of gets its own complicated thing, but uh, how they do it, it means anybody can sort of join this yeshiva, chevra, yeshiva, you know, we, this, this chevra yeshiva that they have. Uh, and um, those are people who are not going to be involved, have anything idea, have any idea about what's going on in terms of the, the Sheptot. Lutzato himself seems to be engaged with this entirely. So, then it gets to the question is, well, do, you, do we define him as a Sabatianist or not? But I think the issue here is connecting Ramchal to those who came before him. He, skipping over Bassan a little bit, you know, going back to Benjamin Cohen Vitale, he really sees himself, this is, that is Ramchal, sees himself as the culmination of what's been taking place over the previous few generations. You've got this messianism that is a legitimate messianism that's the, with Sheptai Tzvi. You have within, locally, within the Italian peninsula, 
this entire sort of Italian Hasidism where there's Kabbalah and there's this uh, social consciousness. And by social consciousness, I mean like this, this, in, this goal to bring pietism to a larger population. Uh, and you have messianism all mixed in, so it goes from Zakut to Vitale, and uh, you know, and others as well, um, to this entire group where Lutzato is ultimately the, uh, you know, sees himself as a culmination of this. What that means, I think, is not that it's not about defining whether this person is a Sabatianist or not. It's rather, you know, internally sort of recognizing that whatever we call Sabatianism, it is directly, it's ensconced, it's intertwined with everything that we would consider to be quote-unquote legitimate Judaism, or legitimate, it's, you know, and Vitale is the perfect example for this, because it was essentially publicly known that this was a person who still believed uh, that there was something about Shep Tzvi being the Mashiach but he was also the Kohen Gadol. So what is that exactly supposed to mean? Like, what are we supposed to do with that? Um, yeah, so I'm not sure how you want to take it from that point. <laughs> okay, I mean, there's a lot there. So I, I think Tishbi, he looks at, I mean, a number of Ramchal's writings and things. I mean, Maimra Gula is something that he looks at, right? I know he looks at uh, a couple yeah. of works. We also should mention, I mean, Tishbi, so mentioned this later at the end, but it's in Hebrew and is Nativa Emuno Minut and also in, in, in English was public as Messianic Mysticism from Lippmann Library. But uh, Mayor Benio noted his story and I think pushes back on, on some of Tishbi's stuff, right? He doesn't uh, is this he doesn't agree necessarily with this Sabatian uh, right. thing so, that he finds here. So the Tishbi Benayao relationship seems to have been fascinating and they have frequently argued with each other in the notes and not in a nice way. Uh, Benayahu, um, it's like two things about Benayahu. He, with with regard to Ramchal, I think he saw himself as sort of like um, protecting him or like removing any notion of this, uh, you know, Sabatian um, red flag and, you know, saying, okay, no, Ramchal was kosher and, and, and that's that. Tishbi does not have an agenda in any way that I can see. He reads these things. He, re he read them extremely closely and he did his analysis. And I think he was, uh, <laughs> he was unhappy that Ben Ayao sort of, you know, seemed to have an agenda of trying to keep uh, Remchal, uh, you know, to, to separate Remchal from any of this, uh, the Sabatianism. Uh, the other thing about Ben Ayao, just this is a side note, is that, he published so much and he saw so much and knew so much that he, it's amazing what's out there from Benayahu, but he also didn't really have any particular argument that he was ever making. Tishbi clearly was looking at these things and, you know, he was arguing new historical <clears throat> ideas based on the manuscripts that had not previously been looked at. Um, Benayahu generally just would take something and even publish it so people could see it. Yeah, and Tishbi, like I said, the, his arguments are really very, very thorough, really busy with the text. I mean, here we just mention like a drop, not, you know, you can look it, at it's it. It's scratching the surface. It's, and it, the, it's all convoluted also. Like with each of these issues, it's like, uh, you know, you can go down a rabbit hole, but then the whole thing is like turning inside out and uh, 
It's very, very complicated. Right. And then there's also um, uh, Garb's book, right? Jonathan Garb, Yoni Garb's book as Mikubal Believe Asaira, Moshechem Lutzato, and his biography from Tel Aviv University Press, where he does discuss some of this as well. He mentions the Benio Tishbi, and he kind of gets involved there too. I, you know, and probably in your dissertation on Ramchal as well. So there's, there's a lot of, this is like uh, um, all over. So, I mean, you mentioned the messianism. So I think, was this kind of like widely known? Like did this, or, you, you know, Ramon Shachaji is sitting there just from what we were discussing in the beginning, where he kind of saw the situation, this young person, and he just kind of just assumed as such that there was debating issues going on. Okay, so in the early, so there are two stages. We haven't even gotten to the second stage yet. So the, the early stage, you know, Haji is sitting in the triple community of Altona, Hamburg, Brunswick. So which is known as Ahu. He's sitting there, and the there are two other major rabbinic figures that we know of, that you're, many of your listeners will have heard of. One is uh, Ezekiel Katzenelenbogen. He published the Sefer Knesset Yechezkel, or he didn't publish, I think it was published after he died. And the other figure is one of the most fascinating people from the early modern period, and that's Yaakov Emden. Chajiz and Ketzenelenbogen seem to have gotten along. I mean, Emden, I don't think, got along with anybody, um, but you can ask the experts who really know Emden, uh, you know, about what about his personality. Um, so when Chajiz was writing to Venice, you know, to the Venetian, to, to Venetian rabbis in, you know, 1729, 1730, um, Ketzenelenbogen was a part of this. Emden I think was offended that he wasn't asked to be sort of on, um, you know, in the, with, in this, in this early, or let's say united in there as a front, you know, coming from the, the tribal community. Uh, and in fact, uh, JJ Schachter has a recent article in this Feshra for Schneider uh, Lyman about where he's sort of dealing and d- d- addresses the fact that Emden and Ketzenelbogen didn't get along at all. And Emden, I mean, Emden insulted lots of people, and he, uh, uh, including Ketzenelbogen. And so, in any event, in the early in that first stage, that that's what's happening here. The it's primarily you've got like this sort of Hajiz and Ketzenelbogen front, and then they contacted rabbis in in Venice, and there are rabbis in Venice who are then involved on the oath side. Okay. As I said, then it sort of died down in a larger, in the larger sense, like internationally, so to speak. And then locally within Padua, the Ramchal group, like it, it continued. Um, and I published an article about the sort of uh, social, socio-religious aspect of what was taking place internally. Ramchal was interested in, and you can actually see this in all the. In, in the in the works that he published, both during his lifetime and some of the stuff that was published after, where he really is stressing this idea of oneness, that there's God's oneness is the only thing that we can know, and in knowing it, we should actually manifest it in this world. So all that he's doing messianically, so to speak, has to be actually manifested in a public sense. It's not that it happens magically. It's that you there seems to be work that can be done, you know, socially in your interactions with other people. 
Uh, and that's the reason he seems to have opened up what was this like Chebra Yeshiva, uh, which initially was like this just small confraternity, this small Chebra, but then became this larger thing. He opened it up where it had multiple sort of that it was like uh, not just a hierarchy or like a pyramid, but but there were these uh, strata. Somebody would come in at whatever level that they came in. And as long as they were completely on board, that's all good. We're not expected, you know, to meet a certain expectation, except that they were engaged in the same pursuit of piety and pietism. So that continued in 1731 and 32 and 33. And then towards the end of 33, Ramchal had, he attempted to publish a book in Venice and in a way, publishing anything just got things all, it just brought things back. Meaning he had, he had enemies in Venice. Um, the controversy had been, had actually created a significant problem within Venice among the rabbis, even within the families, um, in terms of how to address this. And even, you know, like I said before, not everybody actually just supported Ramchal, but, but sometimes there was a, at least there was, the concern was how do we react? Do we do, you know, they may not believe that he actually had a Magid, but they're not necessarily going to want to try to suppress the, all the activity. And this was something that was generally, that, that took place or became much more prominent. This issue of how do we react became much more prominent, you know, with the second round uh, that really took off in 1734 and 35. So basically, um, Ramchal independently decided, okay, so he was trying to publish something, that's one thing. But independently, he also, and it's possibly related to the fact that his father, who was in business, was not doing very well in business, um, had decided that he wanted to leave uh, he wanted to leave Padua and he was going to go to Amsterdam. Now, previous to this, Ramchal had written that he wanted to go to Eretz Israel, and that probably reflected some, again, his, this messianism that was within him. Um, and he also, and he already had a brother who was in Amsterdam. So um, I'm forgetting the dates exactly, but it might have been in January 1734 or something. He decided, okay, he's leaving Padua. Now, this is a major move because of everything that he'd been building within the city. But, you know, for all that he was, and you can see, like, for your listeners who, you know, really want to study Mesilat Yashirim, like, if you really get into it, it stresses humility more than almost anything else. Um, for all his humility, though, he seemed to really have wanted, like, a greater public recognition. And, and the other thing to keep in mind is that he was very young at this time. And when you're young, you really want recognition. Um, he left Padua, and he started going north. Now, this is like the dead of winter, and he crosses the Alps in the winter. It's... You know, some biographers have seen it as like he's being chased out of Italy. I don't know that he really is, but he definitely he's had it with something like either there's a significant problem. It could be related to the finances, you know, within the family, but probably less that than he is ready to go off. And he makes his move, you know, going through Central Europe. And he, uh, we can see how he goes, where he, you know, where he stops on the way. 
and he ends up in, in Frankfurt. When he got to Frankfurt, he sought out uh, Yaakov Cohen Poppers. Yaakov Poppers is known mostly by the Abbeitin of Frankfurt, and the Frankfurt at that time and large yeshiva, large Jewish community. Um, and Ramchal presents himself, and Poppers has heard of him, and he knows who he is because obviously he knows Chajiz, and you know, Lutzato's name is out there. Um, and it's a question as to, it seems very, either Ramchal was extremely naive or he thought that he was charismatic enough that he could sort of change everybody's, you know, he could win everybody over. But Poppers seems to not be impressed. And in their meeting, um, it turns into like an interrogation and things go very badly. Um, and it leads to some, you know, something much worse than, you know, sort of like, uh, who do you think you are? But rather like Ramchal is condemned yet again. It wasn't, it doesn't seem like he was attempting to do anything in Frankfurt, but Poppers was almost like ready for him, which is a very interesting thing going back to what, you know, what was happening in 1730 when I said all it seemed to, you know, at least to me, it seems like the rabbis who were concerned, Chajiz specifically, but also in Venice, the concern about what was taking place in Padua, they were, you know, as long as everybody was quiet, then they'd be okay with it. And it's possible that, yes, that's like a superficial way of, what, of you know, of how things were going. But the moment that there's a move that may upset the status quo or that somebody is trying to do something else, then that's going to be a problem. So Popper seemed to be ready and ultimately Ramchal is condemned and he's forced to sign an oath again. And he, you know, uh, he ultimately does sign this other oath. Um, he isn't, you know, he doesn't have to, but he chooses to. Um, and there's this big debate ultimately about what to do with everything that he's ever written. Anybody who has any manuscripts, what are we supposed to do with these things? They should just be suppressed entirely. And basically, it's a very long story, but to make it short, um, these letters, there are letters now that start flying all over Central Europe and Eastern Europe and into Italy um, about the danger of Ramchal. Ramchal left Frankfurt, this is again, still 1734, and... Uh, actually, no, by 1735, and he makes his way to Amsterdam. And he gets to Amsterdam, and once he's in Amsterdam, he's there for eight years, and, he, and things are quiet. But his arrival in Amsterdam, and he, and he basically arrived and lived among Portuguese Jews there who had very little to do with anything, with any Jews who were, you know, Ashkenazic Jews who were in Central and Eastern Europe. His life continues off in that direction in sort of a quiet way. And between 1735 and 1736, there are many, many letters that have spread throughout Europe um, denouncing Ramchal. And ultimately, there are at least 11 bands that are sent. Um, and each of the bands reflects sort of the concerns of the particular rabbi, depending on where they are. Again, like I said at the beginning, then most if not all the, uh, the individuals that we're talking about, except with the exception maybe of, of Venice itself, some of the rabbis in Venice, uh, most had had no connection to Ramchal, not even like, you know, a connection to a connection, so to speak. And they were just sort of one following 
a previous ban, and yet each one sort of reflected the particular concerns of whomever was, you know, whoever authored it. So you have bans that are brutal, um, that uh, like Eliezer Rokeach, who's talking about, uh, you know, that they can refer to like a ban in this lifetime and the, and in the afterlife, and you have others that are that uh, extend to those who were part of the group in Padua. You have others that are less intense. You have others that are referred to um, a ban in Kabbalah. Then there's like a clear sort of disagreements in terms of like when it comes to the study of Kabbalah. Uh, which seemed to be, you know, for those who were sort of looking back to what is the origin of this entire issue, um, there were many rabbis who then were saying, no, 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 you know, you can't go so far as to ban Kabbalah, the study of Kabbalah, because, you know, then you're you're essentially just uh, suppressing an entire aspect of what we, you know, what we do and what the truth is and that sort of thing. This becomes a larger discussion in the Italian peninsula specifically, and Bassan gets involved, and so does uh, Samson Morpurgo, who's uh, um, the rabbi in Ancona, basically getting into this whole thing of, you know, this, where I mentioned this Italian Hasidism, and this pietism that it that had spread for several generations, Morpurgo basically says, you know, we have like three or four generations of what's been developing here more and more and more, and we have to accept it. And he even makes this analogy of, you know, accepting that uh, like when B'nai Israel were entering uh, the, the land of Israel, you know, so you have two and a half tribes that stay on the east uh, part of the river. So like, you know, that wasn't the original, that was not the mitzvah, that's not the commandment initially, but that's what happens, and then we have to accept it. Moshe Rabbeinu had to accept it. So it's a similar issue, um, at least as Mark Porgo presents it. And so we have to understand, okay, we're going we're gonna to respect the fact that there are more and more uh, pietistic groups that are in Italy, and so, you know, and understand the context, for basically the context from which Ramachal was coming from. Um, ultimately, many of his, you know, some of the some of the bands refer one actually in particular, actually coming out of Venice from um, a rabbi named Isaac Pacifico said something to the effect that he gave like a certain number, I think it was like two weeks that, uh, you know, all Jews and, you know, men and women, anybody who has anything belonging or the, the, any copy of something from Chal's work has to turn it in within this time period. Uh, otherwise they'll fall into this ban. And ultimately, uh, the discussion related to what was had taken place in Frankfurt with this sort of inquisition or this the, this, this this experience that Ramchal had on the way to Amsterdam, um, the issue came to well, once we've confiscated all of his uh, all these manuscripts, what do we do with them? Do we burn them or do we bury them? And Morpurgo sort of. Uh, um, he arranged ultimately that, you know, let's not be so extreme and burn. We don't want to burn these things, but we'll bury them. But ultimately it led to, you know, the suppression of what, of, of his, of, of Remchal's early activity. So getting back to the Sabathian part, now that's kind of like the end of the controversy and the end of his life, you know, we kind of discussed in the previous episode, but getting back to the Sabathian part, so he does, he writes a work against Sabathianism, right? 
And what's the story with that? What is he? Why is he? Does he? Is he writing it just to deflect? Was he writing it for like other? I mean, I think it's. So he didn't. He wrote this. He didn't convince many people. It seems Um, it wasn't published during his lifetime. You know, he wrote a lot. He wrote constantly, and he may have written this as a, not as a deflection, but as sort of. you know, some sort of defense. But, you know, even in the defense, he's not, you know, we're talking about somebody who really probably believed that Shabzai Tzvi had been the Mashiach ben Yosef. But he can't say that. And he can't try to explain the nuance of what that's supposed to mean because he can't even explain what it means that there's a, I mean, maybe in, you know, sitting in his yisha, not even in the yeshiva part, but in like the chavra, like in the, you know, in the small group, maybe he could explain, okay, well, this is what Mashiach ben David is, and Mashiach ben Yosef, and how he's Moshe Rabbeinu. Like, you can't do that in a book, in a sefer, you know, and especially to people who have it out for you. So, um, you know, that's sort of the problem of, I mean, this is just a general problem. It doesn't have to just be within, you know, within controversy, but like when, when there's an argument and if you're not on the same page about trying to actually come to a resolution and you know and here this is just an accusation that he has defended himself there's not really a good way to defend um he couldn't really defend himself on the issue of the magid like you know this is what he claimed uh you know he claimed that he had a magid and that he had all the like and he didn't he just continued to to argue that until eventually he just stopped talking about it. And by the time he's in Amsterdam and even a couple, like a couple of years before that, it, there's, no, there's no mention of it. So like, it's not clear as to what's going on internally at that point either. Um, with the Shepta Ut stuff, like he just sort of seems to want to leave it aside um, because it's not going to do him any good and he's not able to really address it. But if we look you know, to me, it's sort of like looking at this very carefully and saying, okay, there's like an inner life and an outer life, how he ultimately, you know, presents himself um, distinct from what he is personally living. Um, and we did, I think we talked about this at the end, like, and you know, when we first spoke, um, he eventually left Amsterdam. I mean, he'd been living well, and he left Amsterdam. He went to Eretz Israel, you know, because he had been pursued. It was clearly in pursuit of something that was still within him. Um, but at that point, it's not "quote unquote" Sabatian, and he's he's completely removed from the Italian context. And Vitali, I should have mentioned, Benjamin Cohen Vitali died in 1730. So these later years, the second round of the controversy, don't even involve him. And the, you know, the biggest support that Ramchal could have that he had had um, isn't even there anymore. So does a lot of this, I mean, kind of what you're saying is but the Sabatianism here gets, gets getting back to that question of, you know, what is Sabatianism exactly 60 years, 50, 60 years after Shabzai Tzvi? I mean, that's kind of what, what does it mean here? What's the belief? Like what's going on? Yeah. So it's not easy. I mean, historiographically, um, you know, historians generally can refer to Sabatianism as this sort of, it's an umbrella term that's going to refer to something related to the initial messianic movement that 
you know, of Shabtai Tzvi in 1665 and 66. Um, but what you see with the the Maminim, like the, the Donme, you know, in the Ottoman Empire, or what you see with the Frankists, I mean, those two groups, are, you know, the question is what connects them? Like the name of somebody, you know, Shabtai Tzvi, and that's it. Like it's a hard... It's a hard sell. And in the case of Ramchal, I mean, you know, he he's somebody who was able, he looked at Nathan of Gaza's text. He took it seriously, I think, because of the scenario. The scenario being that he was introduced to Kabbalah probably through Bassan. And then Bassan's father-in-law was, you know, Benjamin Cohen. So, and who was a Sabbatianist in the sense that he really did believe something about Shabtai Tzvi. The question exactly means what? You know, I know that uh, Matt Goldish on, on one of the episodes that he was on with you referred to, um, you know, that supposedly that he had had a, that, that Vitaly had had a, a portrait of Shabtai Tzvi hanging. I mean, you know, you could ask a lot of questions about what it means when we have portraits up and, you know, especially in this day and age with, anyway. Um yeah, so the at the time, you can also ask the question about like what did Sabatianism mean? Khajiz, I don't, he didn't know about Ramchal's messianic doctrine per se. Tishbi actually refers to that. Um, he didn't have any reason to, he, he, he wasn't assuming, for instance, that Ramchal believed that Shabtai Tzvi was, was the Mashiach. Like not initially. He didn't necessarily think, he just knew that this was a problem. In his mind, this is a problem. There's a 20-year-old kid who says that he has a Magid. And that whole thing is tied at that time. It's all mixed in. Kabbalah and this notion that there's a Magid is tied into this, uh, this sort of umbrella term that we're calling Sabatianism. Right. Right. Um... Yes, I mean this is all this is all uh, part of it. Another thing, I mean, from now is a good time to mention. I don't think you mentioned it originally, especially, but it's interesting now, especially with the new publication of the two new editions of Magal Toiv of the Chida. You know, the Chida's kind of relationship, you know, Ramchal is weird. I mean, he kind of mentions all of the Sabathians, you know, in his in Shemak Dalim and in in, in Magal Toiv. You know, Shmuel Primo was mentioned, and Rabbi Yomin Chai and uh, Vitali is mentioned. I think from Rovigo also. I mean, he, he alludes to to Rabbi Yomin Rabach. He mentions, I think, uh, Sabathianism. There's there's Sabathian Sabath, the comments that he makes in there. I, I saw recently, but Ramchal is kuflutsato, and like he doesn't mention his works. He doesn't mention him. Like he's just. Like he's like the the one person that gets just like deleted of all his svarim, but he while he mentions Sabathians doesn't mind talking about them. Do you have like his what's the yeah? That's that? interesting. I I don't know his his opinion on Chal is curious to me because he does mention that he 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 mentioned something about having uh, yeah, either he either met. I'm now forgetting the dates of everything. He either met or he heard a story about what Yaakov Chazak Chazak was a. Forte is his name. So he was uh, he was part of this original group. He was older than Ramchal, and he became uh, um, he became a major posek in like during his time, like you know, in in Italy. Um, 
and he and so Chida quotes something from Chazak about Ramchal and about the Magid, um, but he doesn't, you know, engage with him. So and and why that is, I I, I don't know. It could be almost coincidental. I'm not really sure. I mean, in the sense of like, what is Ramchal in Padua? you know, in the opinions about him in the latter, let's say in the second half of the 18th century. You know, he never went back. His parents left. He had siblings, but at least two of them, it seems, went to Amsterdam with him or at some point. Um, and, you know, we get in the early 19th century, in the first half of the 19th century, we have uh, the rabbi of Padua, Mordechai Shmuel Garandi, who is seems to be going out of his way to like rehabilitate Ramchal. Um, so it's possible that by the time Chida is coming through, that there's not a lot to say, but, I, I, but I'm not really sure um, why that is or how that is. Right, actually, yeah. And Morcheshmul Gurandi, who I uh, told you before the episode in, um, yeah. in Amin Agnazim, the 13th volume of Achalom's journal. So this there's a whole art there's a whole article about his history work, Sefer told us Italia, and which he which is kind of a combination of his work and Khanan Nepi's work. So on the part on Ramchal, it seems like he as he's as far as they put it together, he kinda changed things around there. He portrays it as Nepi and him, and this is like accurate, but the way that uh uh Hillel son shows it, he kind of kind of changed it to make it you know like you said he was he was very involved with, with rehabilitating Ramchal's image it's seemingly right so it could be that in those decades after Ramchal left Padua and he and died I mean he died young uh, he wasn't even 40 that um, there was still something negative hanging over or that simply there wasn't that much to be said about him at the time um, you know and the, the stuff that he published during his lifetime was mainly in Amsterdam Sharim was published in you know in Amsterdam. Right, right. I, I can read so so what it says from the Makar from Khan Nepi here. I read it to you before I can read it here. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he says he's quoting uh, this you it's on page Sadi in the Minagnazim. He says, Shashama Ish Nemon Shekashamesa Rav Lutato Hanal Baako, Harav Malachi, Tayrach Atzmela Lichalar Tisral, Lukavrisham, Mepnesh Hikr by Shemes, Nichnamaoy the Balchuvagamura. This is not in the the Mordechai uh, Shmuel he does not say this. Uh, he just he brings this story. This Mordechai Blachi he loy shenimtza ba'akik shenifta Rav Lutato says shashimash eziyam ukaidim p'tirasim matza anav ma'ayu to b'shvilz atarich asim lichal the cover of Eretz Yisrael ziyah. Then he goes on and after he prints he leaves out that whole that whole part. And there's more here that he that he clearly changes up. And this is one of the examples they're just showing. And this is about the Mordechai Shmuel Garandi's history. History, famous history work. Um, I'm just cherry picking one piece of the one piece that they talk about. So, mm-hmm. I mean, in, in summation, I mean the Ramchal. So it's kind of a, a complicated part, you know, parsha here. It's Extre- not, extremely not simple they- answer. We're not trying to give simple answers, and 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 also we're not trying to paint Ramchal as a Sabatian either. That is not the point of the podcast. Is not you know is not what I'm saying, and I don't think you know what you're saying. It's it's not it's not simple. Not I mean, I think the the point. Here. I guess there are two points. I guess that that I would want to make one is i don't know that it that it's helpful to imagine you know to make a claim you know looking back like oh okay was Rimchal sabatian or not the point here is that it's clear that he was fully aware and deeply connected 
but he was developing his own theology and his own complicated theology so complicated that it's not like oh, okay it fits into whatever we assume is uh you know has always been the misora like even just this messianic doctrine is so complicated that it's not not just so it's just not simple that's that's one thing and the other thing is that it complicates i think i mentioned this at the very beginning like it complicates our notions of the community and also of uh quote unquote the rabbinates like it's not a single thing um there's not a single jewish community there's real complexity here in terms of how communities are interacting and how the individuals are, are interacting how the rabbis are interacting the whole point ultimately which i'm not even sure that i stressed at all in this is that you really have a a rabbinic controversy it's not even a sabbatian controversy per se ramchal himself was a rabbi Moshe David Valley, Isaac, uh, Isaiah Romanian, Yaakov Chazak, they were all rabbis. They are the rabbinate of Padua. I mean, they, we're missing the chief rabbi, was an, you know, he was in another generation, Shabtai uh, Marini. But his son, Marini, who he was a chief rabbi of Padua after Bassan left, um, his son was part of the Ramchal group. Like we're talking really that this is, you know, if Chajis or even the rabbis in Venice, yeah, there are rabbis in Venice who are, who are, you know, wanting to suppress all of this. Who are they trying to suppress? Other rabbis? So like, and the whole thing with Vitaly is a perfect example. Here's a, a person who's so respected and so highly regarded because of his piety that people accept it as uh, Sabbatianism. Um you know, and especially if it didn't have anything to do with, like, it didn't manifest itself in any particular way. Just meant that he believed something. Question is, what did he believe? Um, now, for somebody like uh, Moshe Chajiz or then Yaakov Emden, these things really, really mattered. Um, and then maybe that gets into a whole Emden Ibshitz thing, like, exactly, like, well, fine. So we are talking about rabbis, and if they believe something else, you know, none of this is kosher. What are we doing exactly? But in any event, um, really, a lot of it gets down to like, how do you define something, and what you know, what sort of questions are we really asking here? Okay, right, absolutely. So, what uh, you know, in conclusion here, I guess, what what uh, reading would you recommend about this whole Ramchal issue? People want to so, read for. Uh, I would say that for the, like to get a basic understanding of what took place for the actual controversy, then you look at Elisheva Karlbach's book, Pursuit of Heresy. She's got two chapters in there in the Ramchal controversy. That's a biography of Khajiz, but mainly about the biography in the, in the context of his Sabadian pursuit, so to speak. So that's the first thing. Uh, if you really want to get deep, but you have to really learn to get into like, <laughs> what's happening, uh, you know, on a deeper level in terms of what Ramchal was thinking, then you really look at Tishvi's work on, um, on Ramchal, and he published many articles, some of which were translated, probably the most important ones were translated into English. Um, and uh, I'm going to have an article that'll come out in, a, I don't know when, a, a year or two, and the controversy and Yoni Garb has a book that he deals quite a bit with the controversy. And he takes that and, you know, the importance of it in, in Ramchal's theology. Um, and that's really probably where I would start. 
And the letters, would you suggest? Oh, and then the letters are amazing, actually. I should have mentioned this before. So the letters are, they're about, they're more than 160 extant letters to, from, and about Ramchal. They were published initially, the bulk of them, about 100, I don't remember exactly the number, maybe 150 of them were published by Simon Ginsburg um, in 1930 one or something like that in two volumes. He wrote from Chal. And then, uh, you know, 15 years ago or something, or 20 years ago, uh, Mordechai Shriki, who founded Machon Ramchal, he republished the letters, um, which is a better edition. It's more readable, and he also has notes, and it's very, very helpful. He included some stuff that uh, Ginsburg didn't have. Um, you know, I would only mention one other thing, is that if you, <laughs> it was really one of the great, scholars of early modern Jewish history um, was Elliot Horowitz. And he passed away a few years ago. He wrote a fantastic articles. Each one was just uh, hugely influential and uh, was a fascinating character. And I remember he told me something at one point where the thing that got him into early modern Jewish history that made him want to be an early, a historian of early modern Jewry uh, was reading these letters from, you know, these Igrot Ramchal, because they just tell a story that is, that is fascinating, um, about fascinating characters, some of whom your listeners will have heard of and learned, you know, something from them. But you really get into personalities and these are fascinating and deep and con- contemplative personalities. So, uh, yeah, I would definitely go there. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll link, you know, a couple of these of these things. And and yeah, like I said, this is a complex thing, I know. And, you know, we mentioned here as well that even amongst scholars, there's kind of, you know, you mentioned the Benio and Tishbi. And I think when I had on uh, Professor Lishava Kalbach, I think she... Uh, emphatically endorsed Romchal against any of the uh, accusations. So I know there's, there's, you know, it's not clear. And, you know, we just try to hopefully tell people about the controversy and how it was. And, and, and like I said, the, the, the letters are so fascinating because you can actually read a lot of the source material, a lot of those letters um, that were published in manuscripts. So yeah. I'll try to find the link there. It's available in farm stores. I'll try to, it, I know it's available. It's around $30. For sure. I, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. even if you can't find it in this farm sale, I mean, I no, I'm saying any, in any farm store in general is widely available. And I'll, I'll put a link. Um, I'll try to find a link somewhere for it to put in the he show. Wrote, I mean, the other thing just to mention is that Machon Ramchal really, they're publishing regularly, you know, stuff from Ramchal. I mean, Mordechai Shriki has made it his mission his life's work to really just to promote Ramchal and uh, they, they do a tremendous amount. Yeah. Okay. So uh, with that, thank you for joining me once again. Uh, to discuss thank you. It was Ramchal. a pleasure.